The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and joining me today. So I'm checking in with all my listeners here, how people have been doing over the past 18, 19 months, you know, however long we've been dealing with this COVID nightmare. I mean, one of the things that has really helped me over this time and also has helped me many times over my life, definitely over the past 20 years, is a yoga practice. Over 36 million Americans now practice yoga and the number continues to grow. Now, a lot of the people practicing are women, more than 72%, but I'm reading a lot of men and athletes and people are picking up the practice as well. And older people, it's funny, like older, I'm, I'm in that category, 14 million people over the age of 50 are picking up yoga as well. And I really love to see that number because I think everybody, especially people in that age category should be practicing yoga. So we're going to dive into one of my favorite things today, talking about yoga with my guest, Lily Allen Duenas. And Lily, tell me how you say your name right off the bat, because I'm, I'm sure I probably messed it up. Oh, no, you did brilliant. That works fine. <laughs> okay, Lily Allen Duenas. And Lily is an international yoga teacher and the founder of the Wild Yoga Tribe. And she's also a holistic healer, vegan nutritionist, and meditation teacher. And she's the host of the popular Wild Yoga Tribe podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. So we're going to have a lot of ground to cover today because I love to talk about all of these things. So welcome, Lily, from France. That's Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Diane. It's a joy to be with you. Well, it's so fun to talk with you and see the the sun shining in the background. It's kind of gray and and nasty here in San Diego. So I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. So let's just start off and tell me a little bit about your um, your baby, the Wild Yoga Tribe. I mean, one of the first things I noticed on your website is that you say you're all about collaboration, compassion, connection, and community. And I really like that. So tell me how Wild Yoga Tribe came together. Mm, thanks for asking. Um, so Wild Yoga Tribe, I uh, founded that and started it in 2017 in the fall. Um, I had been working in nonprofit marketing management in the States. Um, I'm from California, by the way, not from France. But um, so I'd been working in nonprofit marketing management for about seven years. And I had just, I don't know, it, it was a bit of a burnout, but it was more so just my soul calling for more, um, as well as uh, my job. Um, I had was serving on multiple boards of directors, and I was really involved in volunteer and service work in my community. And I just felt like my, I couldn't, I could barely schedule in time to clip my fingernails, you know, like that was how I was feeling. <laughs> so it was um, time for more. And I had spent about a year like, you know, praying and asking the universe what I was supposed to do. And just one day in yoga class in Shavasana, the answer from inside of my heart so loudly said, be a yoga teacher. So when that decision was made, I uh, within, I, I feel like it was within one week. I had a ticket booked to Kathmandu, Nepal. I had asked my boss for a month's sabbatical to go do this yoga teacher training. I'd already been practicing uh, yoga for roughly eight years. Well, we'll I'll, I'll ballpark that right now and worry about math later. But <laughs> I'd already been practicing for a long time, was really excited about this opportunity. And then within a day of being in Nepal, two days, I knew. I was supposed to continue my journey as a yoga teacher and a yoga practitioner and student. So I came back and then, um, you know, very 
in, in as best a way as I could, I um, quit my job. I sold a lot of things, moved out, and then founded uh, the Wild Yoga Tribe for the kind of purpose of just you know, spreading knowledge of yoga as well as providing this container and structure for other yoga teachers or other people who are curious, even if you're totally a beginner, to learn about yoga, discuss yoga, ask those questions you're not sure how to ask and figure it out. And then now it's really evolved into this uh, podcast and into this place where you can interact and meet yoga teachers from all around the world. My goal is to interview one yoga teacher from every single country around the world. 195-ish is the goal. Um, and I'm working on building this structure as well that you can, um, a back end, a membership kind of aspect to my website, working on that so that you can actually take yoga classes or meditation classes or pranayama and, and do all these amazing things with the teachers I'm interviewing as well. So that's in the works. And I always, Diane, wanted it to be not just yoga with Lily. Yoga, Lily does yoga. You know, it, it just wasn't about me. It's always been about this community, you know, this amazing global community of yoga. I just, it's, it's so vibrant. It's so rich. It's so intensely beautiful that it's just not about me. It is about this collaboration, this community, and the connection I feel to the practice and to all the people who are joining me in it. Well, you can see that you're really passionate about it. And I love that the idea came to you in Shavasana because I think that the best ideas probably come to people in Shavasana. And that's really, when I first started practicing yoga, the teachers would always say, that's what you're practicing for to get to that place that sweet spot where you're able to be quiet and your minds calm down, your body's just kind of absorbing everything. And it, it's really such a beautiful feeling. I think that's what gets everybody hooked when they first start to get involved with yoga and start practicing is, oh, the Shavasana, <laughs> this, this is it. This is the best. So that's awesome that you got that amazing idea and it's just continued to grow. And I love how your site is laid out and I was diving into it a little bit today before I spoke to you because there's so many great topics and, and so many things of interest for people to explore while they're on the site. But I did want to ask you about the outreach and the collaboration that you're working with different teachers in different countries. And I was curious in how are people practicing in Bahrain, in Botswana, in some of these countries where there's so many challenges, things that we just take for granted, like a mat, you know, or props, or even just a place to practice. I mean, how do people spread the word in places like that in Bahrain? Oh, good question. Um, how interesting. So what's been amazing to me is no matter if I'm talking to somebody from Germany or from Panama or Bahrain, it, it all kind of seems to have these similar elements of, um, in ways, in ways similar. Um, in a country like in Bahrain, um, it's actually really laid back. It's an, it's like a bunch of little islands. It's uh, very, I mean, it has a good democracy. So does Botswana. Like these actually are slightly more, um, I, you know, just slightly more open-minded perhaps or countries. And I'm really excited very soon here in a couple of weeks, I'll be interviewing a woman from Saudi Arabia. And so that's, it just is so exciting for me to learn how it is different um, in these cultures and countries we might have conceptions about. But in um, Botswana, for example, it was really hard for her to find a teacher. It was really difficult. Um, she she was introduced to it in a gym. Um, who I interviewed was named Bonolo Palez, and she's the founder of Yon Yoga, Y-O-W-N-N, if you want to look it up. So she said that it was really tough. She had one, you know, a gym yoga, but that she wanted to be trained in it, and it was so hard for her to find a training. So then she ended up going to Thailand um, to be able to find that training. And um, in Costa Rica, uh, there you know, people are deciding to maybe get trained outside of the country because there isn't the same opportunities inside of theirs. So what was what's really amazing is some of these people like um, Sharon Brenez from Costa Rica or Wiam Zabar from Bahrain, they, they take these teachings and then they create yoga studios or centers or they partner with, um, you know, a, a group already or an organization that has a space. And then they 
provide offerings to their community. They really shed that light on creating yoga teachers, you know, homegrown, home taught, and in their own language, because not everyone um, in every country, of course, is comfortable learning in English or in uh, a language that would be more popular for, you know, their own country to be learning in. So it's just really beautiful to have that mission to provide more um, opportunities for your own community with yoga and then to train them so that they can continue the lineage. So I think that's really inspiring. And did the one teacher, like the one in, in Botswana, for example, what sparked her interest? Because I can remember when I first became interested in yoga and I'm I'm from South Florida, so I was in Miami walking around at the time, this place called Coral Gables. I think I was 18. And I went in a bookstore and I saw the Sivananda Comp- Companion to Yoga. And I started flipping through it and I thought, okay, this this is interesting to me. And something kind of drew me. Did she share with you what that was? Like what kind of drew her in? Was it a, yeah. a person or a book or something? Yeah, Diane, it's always one of my favorite questions to ask. It's usually number one <laughs> that I ask on my podcast to check, you know, how did yoga come to you or how did you come to yoga? And um, what seems to be also a common thread is is A, the root is through a gym. And when you kind of see something and maybe you're going through something really tough and you're, you're struggling and then you think, oh, well, that's different. And maybe you judge it a little. You're a little confused about it. And then you, but then you try it and then you fall in love with it. It's usually that step one or step two is something really bad, uh, or really hard or tough happens. And I'm, um, with Bonolo, uh, from Botswana, she was super gym, super gym activist, uh, really, really fit, you know, anything gym related she did. And this is similar with Sabrina Neitzel from Germany or even what ends a bar, uh, you know, people are very active or, uh, Nadine McNeil from Jamaica, definitely super fit. And they, um, then something happens with Bonolo. It was that she was uh, pregnant and her doctor said, you're on a high risk pregnancy. So you can have no, uh, fitness except for, he said, walking light, light swimming or yoga or all three, you know? And so she said, okay, finally, I'll go try this thing where you just sit down and lay down and it's boring. I'm sure, but I'll try it. Fine. But, but when she tried it, she immediately felt this something shift in her, felt like, oh, this there's magic in this. And she even, Bonolo describes yoga as a fairy godmother. Like she sees so much magic in this practice. Tell me a little bit more about what was going on with her physically at that time. Yeah. So Bonolo was pregnant and it was a high-risk pregnancy and her doctor recommended for her either walking, light swimming or yoga or all three. And she decided, okay, I'll try yoga, that thing where you just sit down and lay on the mat. I'll, I'll give it a go. Why not? And then within just a few minutes of actually sitting and trying the practice or sorry, she wasn't sitting, but in just a few minutes of trying yoga asana, she immediately felt a huge shift, something very different. And like magic in a way. And she even describes yoga as a fairy godmother, you know, something that will always support you and is always there for you and is charming and and, and just has these magical elements to it. So that's also a very common thread as well. I've heard multiple times is that yoga uh, women, some women come to yoga during pregnancy um, because of um, or after pregnancy with postpartum uh, depression or other, you know, physical uh, issues. And I'm also a certified prenatal postnatal yoga teacher. And I, it's just such an honor to get to be with mothers um, before and after and, and be on that journey with them. That's interesting that a lot of people you're saying will also come for an emotional component. Maybe they're not even aware of it at that time, that it's something that they need that they're not going to get from just lifting weights at the gym or running or something like that. And in her case, you know, going through a pregnancy and then did that, um, did that interest you after talking with her for prenatal, you know, to learn that, or were you already on that path to find out more about that? Oh yeah. I've, I've been, I got certified prenatal postnatal, uh, earlier this year. So we're in 2021 right now. And in September, I think I was certified around April. Um, I did a 150-hour training with Yoga Point, um, which is in India, Mahasra, um, Nasik, Nasik, India. And so um, I really had wanted to go to this uh, yoga center, this ashram, so badly. But of course, COVID prevented it. But very luckily, they have such an incredible online 
um, program they've developed. And so while I've been interested in doing prenatal, postnatal for about a year, two years, I finally was able to, you know, dive into it and get that certification here. So it wasn't Benola who inspired me, but it, it has, it's always been a little nerve wracking for me when a mother or a mother to be has entered my classroom. I just really wanted to make sure that I was able to keep her safe, um, and provide all the modifications needed for that would correlate directly to her, her, um, trimester and to even to which part of the trimester she's in, which half of it, which quarter, which week. And, um, there's so many benefits of yoga, especially the emotion. I feel like people, if you're coming for the physical element of yoga, I think you within maybe eight practices will realize it's even more about the psychological and the emotional than the physical. I feel like physical for me is, is last on the list <laughs> at this point. That's so true. I noticed that just in my own evolution of of practicing, just trying to get into it. And when you were talking about some of those teachers, I remember that first time when I picked up that Sivananda Companion to Yoga book, there weren't a lot of yoga classes. This was like maybe the late 80s. And it was still kind of a fringy thing. I mean, there were people that were teaching, but it wasn't like the explosion that it is today. So at that time, it was hard to find a yoga class, you know, that I could participate in. Now it's, it's so huge. It's everywhere. And I'm interested to find out about teachers in countries where maybe yoga could be frowned upon or stopped or, you know, submitted. What's the word? <laughs> Resist. Like in some countries, when you talk to the teacher in Saudi Arabia, I know there are a lot of places in Saudi Arabia that are a little more open than maybe other countries in the Middle East. What do you think people do there? Well, I'm not sure. I haven't had a strong conversation with her yet. Just a 10 minute get to know you little quick zoom. But um, I will say in Mexico, um, if you're in some of the smaller villages, like the woman I've interviewed, her name's Ana Paula Hernandez, and she is amazing. She said when she came, um, she was trained in Canada. She was married in Canada, living in Canada, and then moved back home to a small village outside of Guadalajara. And she wanted to open a little at-home yoga studio before opening a bigger one. And everybody in the village would call her a bruja, a witch. They all thought she was a witch. And they, I, I said, is that still a, a problem? And she said, absolutely, they still think I'm a witch. And she said her mother would pray for her, um, pray for her soul because she was concerned she was doing something that wasn't um, in alignment with their faith. And that's very true in the Philippines as well, uh, or in Egypt, uh, even because even in big city like Cairo, when I interviewed Farah Mustafa, a dear, dear friend, a, a fellow uh, yoga teacher from my yoga teacher training in Nepal, great friend, she said that um, she can't really do mantras like Om or um, any of the Gairachiri mantras, any of those mantras because it, it might make them feel a little uncomfortable. Um, but also she's teaching in English and in Arabic. She'll kind of, you know, go through and do both languages in her class. And she'll sometimes use a little Sanskrit. So then if she's using the chanting, she feels like I'm mixing up three different languages and it's not super fair to me. They get so confused. Um, or yeah, in, um, oh, where was it? I was talking to um, Michelle Shanti Williams, from Belize. And it's a very strong, strong Catholic community. And they have a lot of Jesuits. And when she wanted to do an international yoga festival, she received some pushback. But then she went to the um, Jesuit leaders in the church, and they were so supportive and so inclusive and um, just saying, what can we do to help? We don't want the community to feel like they, they can't join or they feel alienated. Like, let's do it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're doing japas and you're doing mantras and we're here. It's that's how you connect to God. And we see there's multiple ways to connect. You don't have to just use a rosary. You can use a mala. Like it's so cool to see that there is these open-minded communities that are kind of blossoming under yoga. I've yet to encounter a teacher. Maybe it's because they're not online. If they're being um, censored, maybe that's why I haven't encountered them yet. But uh, so far, no one has said, uh, you know, the police has come and shut down a class. I, I haven't heard anything like that yet. Just some community discomfort, 
some community maybe name calling and maybe pushing back on it. Um, and then perhaps even having to modify some of the traditions of yoga in a way that feels more aligned with the, the faith in their community. Right. And I'm sure you have to be respectful of that. There was a big incident here in Southern California. I'm sure you probably heard of it in Encinitas where the school board was challenged where teachers, they wanted to have yoga in schools, which I think is so beneficial for kids. And a lot of people gave pushback because they felt that it was contrary to their faith or something that, you know, you're teaching our kids Hinduism or something like that. So I can see where you'd have to be a little careful or respectful. And really the interesting thing, I think it does bring you closer to God, to those being open to those spiritual feelings, being open to feeling more compassion after you've had this great practice and you're lying there in Shavasana, then you definitely feel more loving to people. So yeah, I think it's interesting the, the, the pushback or the resistance sometimes when really if they opened to it, they would feel that it's, it's not like that at all. Yeah. I love Swami Satchitananda's quote, one truth, many paths. Yes. Oh, oh, that just, mm, it just warms me and fills me. And I think that is so relevant to what we're saying now. One truth, many paths. It is. It's so true. And why do you think that yoga has continued to grow over the past few years and spreading its tentacles more around the world? to places where they may have never even been to a class. And this, this practice is so ancient, but it's still so relevant today, even more so today, I think. I, it's an interesting image of the tentacles of yoga spreading. I, I like it more thinking of the tendrils of yoga yes. unfurling and blossoming, but tentacles will we'll roll with the octopus. <laughs> right, oh, the octopus theme. Yes, my octopus teacher on Netflix is glorious if you were – interested in that. I recommend it. It's, in fact, it's spiritual. It's touching. You feel the connection of all creatures. It's so beautiful. But um, why do I think that yoga has spread so widely? Um, and why are we, you know, the numbers growing and growing? I really feel that given the state of the world and given how things are, and, I, and I'm going to speak from my own um, perspective here, of course, I'm going to generalize to me being a Californian, United States citizen, you know, I, that's the perspective I do have. Um, I'll say that in the West, we're a super hyper fast paced society that is push, 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 run, 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 go, 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 hurry, 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 rush, rush, rush. And then also this just constant comparison culture or this drive for commercialism and drive for consumption. And then we're just so stimulated every minute of the day with our smartphones, our advertising, our um, all the sounds and stimuli. Like it's just, we're inundated. We're swamped. Okay. It's an octopus in a swamp. <laughs> we are swamped with these messages and, and sounds and and just people telling us how to think and what to do and us feeling this pressure, this pressure and stress. And I remember when I was in high school, even it was like, how are you stressed? How are you tired? It's like, that was my standard response. 365 days a year. I felt like it was exhausting. Um, and because of that, I think we know in our hearts and in our bodies and in our, and every part of us, I think knows I need a little self-care. I need a little something for me. I need a little space and we need a little quiet and yoga gives those gifts. Yoga is, I can think of no better way than, than the whole path of yoga, right? It's not just asana, it's meditation, pranayama, all the elements, the yamas and the niyamas, which are uh, codes of conduct for social and personal ways to be. But all of the practices of yoga, I think, are in alignment with what we need um, and what our society is calling for. Because whether you realize it or not, you're your body knows it. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do with uh, with yoga asana and pranayama and meditation and uh, yoga nidra and, and chanting and, and uh, kriyas and all the practices. It's going to help us as a society and a culture and individually heal, heal and try to just come back to ourselves, come back to the earth, come back to... right. Yeah, just ground down. We seem down. to need it now more than ever. That's so so true because we're so overstimulated just from the minute we wake up 
most people have their phone right by their bed. And I've tried not to do that. I, I plug it in in the bathroom. So it's not the first thing that I look at in the morning, you know, but it's hard because you're, you feel that you have to, like, there's something pushing you. It's a compulsion. To, it is your, it's a compulsion. And we are definitely bombarded with too much noise, too much stimulation, too much everything. So this ancient practice is really needed now more than ever. So it's mm. so great that your voice is out there in the world. And what were some of the the books or the teachers that really influenced you as you were starting out on your path? Because there's mm. definitely been a lot on mine. Like I'm a big Ram Dass fan. I love Dr. Wayne Dyer and Louise Hay and even reading some of the older texts like Ramana Maharshi or uh, Yogananda, you know, autobiography of a yogi, those kind of things. What kind of Absolutely. opened up your head a little bit? Absolutely. So for me, um, I'm going to talk about all the books that kind of I feel like relate to yoga, but maybe are not 100% even about yoga. So so bear with me. Uh, I'll say that some of my favorite teachers to read spiritual texts from or texts that like fill up that that bucket of like oh, contemplation, reflection, just um, deep looking. Um, I love uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, probably, hopefully your listeners are, are familiar with him. I'm actually right now doing an online retreat at Plum Village with him and um, his monks and nuns. It's a three months rains retreat. And it's all online. I'm just so lucky. And I'm uh, I'm, there's the app that's free. There's recordings on YouTube. Like you're welcome to join along. Anyone who's tuning in, there's um, a lot of great offerings from the retreat that are just completely public um, and free. Uh, so what is beautiful? I love Titnot Han. I love how he calls us with the bell of mindfulness and how he, he reminds us to cradle, to cradle our emotions, cradle our anger and suffering like a baby and just just really with so much love and compassion. I love the imagery he gives. Amazing. Well, hold that thought real quick. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. I'm talking with Lily Allen Duenas, Wild Yoga Tribe. We're going to find out more in just a minute. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Lily Allen Duenas, and she's the founder of Wild Yoga Tribe, an amazing yoga teacher and voice out there around the world. And I'm so glad that she had a minute to chat with me today. Make sure you check out her podcast. There's some really interesting stuff on there. She's an incredible host. And also go to her site, wildyogatribe.com. So right before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the teachers that really influenced you in some of the books. And I wanted you to finish your list because there were some great nuggets in there. And you did mention uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And I had the, uh, it was amazing. This was, wow, maybe 10 years ago. And he actually spoke at Deer Park in Escondido here in Southern California. And I have to tell you, it was like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Woodstock or something. I mean, people drove from all over to, to be there and we couldn't all fit into this place, into the Deer Park sanctuary or the monastery area. And people just left their cars like on the side of the road and were walking in to see him. So it, it was pretty incredible. I wish I could have understood him a little bit better because it was just hard to hear you know, what he was saying, but just being there around all those people that were just so happy to be in his presence. 
what was pretty cool. So I just wanted to share that because I, I love his his teachings and his his voice is so amazing. And what were some of the other ones that you suggest people dig into and open their mind to? Totally. I'm glad. Thank you. I, I love speaking about books. I love speaking about Me too. resources. <laughs> yeah. Because I find so much uh, healing and, and just, I, I really love reading and then highlighting and then writing it on a post-it and putting it in my mirror and having these affirmations and these thoughts and all these things to talk about over dinner with my husband and I think books are beautiful, but I would like to just quickly just say I'd, I really recommend your readers check out the Yamas and Niyamas uh, by Bread. Uh, De- sorry, by Bread. <laughs> no, by Deborah Adele. Um, of course, any yoga practitioner should read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And I read the translation by uh, Swami Satchitananda, who I also mentioned earlier. And so uh, he has a book. I, I forget the name of it, but I did read that. Sad Guru's book, Inner Engineering, brilliant. Uh, so much uh, really uh, revolutionary thinking in that book. Maybe not every single thing is, a, is the perfect takeaway, but there's so much in there. Um, I really like Paulo Calejo and, of course, you know, the writer who wrote The Alchemist, and then uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote The Four Agreements. Um, also, just one last one, I will say The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk blew my mind. It changed everything I thought about the body and how trauma is held in it. So I think if you're interested in how the body keeps the score, the body is the vessel that all of our memories and thoughts and and stories and and wounds are held in, man, that book is, is gold. There's a lot of great research and people talking about somatic therapy and holding trauma in the body, the issues in the tissues, that kind of thing. So I think more people are becoming aware of how we hold on to stuff and how helpful it is to learn yoga and have a regular yoga practice and how you can, it can help you to heal from that. So it's so amazing that you're, you're spreading the word. And yoga has had some challenges too, over the past few years. I just want to get your take on this. You know, there's been some controversy in the yoga world. You know, certain teachers like uh, Bikram Choudhury, there's a whole big uh, thing about him. <laughs> I think it was on Dateline. It's really interesting. Or 60 and Netflix. Minutes. Netflix has a special a- And Netflix well. too. Yeah. Yes. And also I'm, I'm hearing things about Patabi Joyce and Ashtanga yoga, which I thought was really disturbing because I, I practiced Ashtanga for a long time. And, you know, just you hear these kind of stories where there's abuse in that teacher-student relationship, the the power that's unequal there. I just wanted to get your take on that. Like as a teacher, don't you hold that really as kind of a sacred thing, a position to be in where you're leading someone through these teachings? And I can see where things can get imbalanced. Yeah. Um, also so relevant to talk about, Diane. Um, I think that as a teacher, especially one that um, in a this really beautiful such a special role of of being able to be kind of physically, emotionally, psychologically present in a way that through the body's expression. And usually in the class, the yoga teacher asks, you know, is it okay if I adjust you and I touch you to help you get into the position better? And, you know, let me know if you're not comfortable, blah, blah, blah. We, we really try to check to make sure it feels right. Um, but of course in these vulnerable poses where you're, you're bound up or you're exposed in ways that of course, that's really not normal for a a body to be like that in our average, you know, just day to day life. It's a very vulnerable, as I said, pose and, and position and place. And so I think as a yoga teacher, you have to be really mindful, um, and very intentional. I try to, I try to remember, remind myself every time I teach is this is a huge honor. A huge honor to be able to teach yoga and be present with my students and to be able to to be with them on this journey and just making sure that that intention of also some boundaries are in place and then continue with my language to make sure I'm always inviting the students to try something, not telling them they have to. You know, there, there's nothing they, – they don't have to do anything they don't want to do. And I think that's something really important for yoga teachers to remember as well is we're not telling them, you know, do happy baby pose, you know, Ananda Balasana, like get in it. You know, th- this is how you do it. 
you keep your eyes open, you know, don't close, you know, we, we give all these cues and we think, oh, you're not listening to me. I'll say it again. I will force you to do it. It's absolutely not. This is, if they just want to hug their knees, that's what they need to do. If they want to keep their eyes open the entire practice, that's what they need to do. It's, it's not about us. And I think that's something as a yoga teacher, um, perhaps with more fame and with more glory and more accolades and accomplishments and attention, you know, things can go the wrong way. And I feel like that could be said in, in a lot of industries as well. If you think about actors or rappers or producers or, you know, this is becoming a huge movement, um, Me Too movement. And uh, in all industries and fields, there's abuse and there is trauma and there is people abusing power in situations. So there's something in yoga now called trauma-informed yoga. And it's a lot of, um, there's books, there's certifications, there's um, trainings as well. And I think that it's every yoga teacher's just complete and total responsibility to make sure that they are informed and they are aware and that they are being really conscious of their presence and their energy and their intention as they teach. It's so important because sometimes women are coming in there and they're in a very vulnerable place and not being aware of that. I could see where it could lead to trouble. And even during my Hay House days, when I was working there and worked with a lot of great teachers like Dr. Wayne Dyer and and others, where you would be in a retreat situation, you could see where these, these participants just really look to these people as you have the answer. Tell me what to do with my life. Like having that kind of power or influence over somebody can be a really tricky thing. And I can see where that can be imbalanced sometimes. So you just have to, I guess, try to even the scales a little bit, you know, as a teacher. I mean, do you feel that responsibility when you're sharing the wisdom and you want to help people, but you don't want it to be imbalanced? Yeah, I, it's interesting you said even the scales. <laughs> I, I don't really – I try to not put myself on a scale. I try not to put other people on the scale. But I think that, um, as I said, I'm just trying to be as conscious as I can about my intention and energy and the actions that I take in the class. And then, as you said, though, you do have to be enormously careful what you say to students because they think you have all the answers. They think you can do every yoga pose. You know all of the, you know, Sanskrit. You you have all of the answers. And I try to remind my students, I'm a student too. Like, I am a student. I'm still learning. I'm, I can share with you my perspective and the knowledge I've gained mainly through other people. It's not even me. Like, I'm not even telling you, you know, mainly the knowledge I have. It's what has been um, given to me on my path and what's been shared with me and what I've absorbed. So I think just trying to make sure we reinforce that in our students that, um, you know, we're learning alongside of you. And this is um, one of my favorite quotes um, or ways to view this uh, is by Kira Sloan. She's the founder of Yoga Anytime. Um, It's a great streaming app for yoga and streaming uh, program. But she says that we are yogi scientists. And I like to think about that and reflect that to my students. It's like, just what's working for you? What's working in your body? You know, I don't know. You have your body. I don't like, is, what do you feel? And, and is that, is that good for you? Like, yes or no, it's, it's your choice. And so just continuing to remind them, you're the yogi scientist. I'm just coming up with things you can try. Right. No, I like that approach because I think sometimes we're told, forget what we're feeling or what's going on in our bodies. And it's always ever changing, right? With your practice. I know some days maybe I can do a headstand, maybe I can't, or I don't have that balance that day. You know, things can shift and change. And especially with your practice over time, I remember when I first started practicing about, I don't know, almost 20 years ago, something like that. And I I was more concerned, like you were saying with the physical aspect. And I, I was into the hardcore Ashtanga classes. I was doing these 90 minute like hell classes and trying to challenge myself physically. But now I'm more into more of the meditation, more of, of getting quiet and trying to listen to that voice. That's where I'm really getting the benefit now. So I've even seen in myself how the relate, my relationship with yoga has changed and I'm sure it will maybe five or 10 years later down the road. 
Beautiful, Diane. Yes. And I wanted to mention too the meditation because that is an important part while we still have a few minutes left of the show. And you're a trained meditation teacher. You've completed five Vipassanas and silent meditation retreats. And I wanted to ask you about this because it's been one of my dreams to do this. And I have not done a silent meditation retreat. And um, I know it's going to be a challenge to be able to do that. I mean, what was your first experience like? Hmm. Thanks for asking. So every meditation retreat is quite different. And especially the, the, the style or the tradition that you are, you're taking a part in, you're being with during that um, retreat is different. So my very first silent meditation retreat was at Wat Patawua. It's a forest monastery up in the north of Thailand. 10 days silent meditation retreat. What was nice is we had I'm, I'm going to approximate, but it was about nine hours a day of um, activity, which was three hours of silent meditation, three hours walking meditation, and three hours of listening to the monks tell us um, Dharma talks. And then one hour a day, which was service related. So about 10 hour of quote unquote programming and then a couple, two meals a day. Anyway, but what I appreciated is that with the walking meditation and with the approximately three hours of Dharma sharing as well, I felt like it was in such a nice balance. I felt like I could hear myself and I felt so light and buoyant and I felt so grateful. And um, it was a great, yeah, just a wonderful experience. It's such a beautiful, beautiful monastery. And the food, it's, I mean, having cabbage soup at 6 a.m. is a little rough. Like that's a tough breakfast for me. Yuck. Um, but it's um, it's a huge, it's, there's, it was a lot of good food and beautiful energy and great weather. Then my second um, meditation retreat was in the SN Goenka tradition. And that's a, a very, very rigid, structured, uh, intense, transformational, just it's, it's going into the fire. You know, you are waking up at 4 a.m. meditating from 4.30 until oh man, 10 straight hours practically of meditation with the smallest of gaps. And you take your last meal of the day at 10 or at 11.30, no food after that. Um, and you're not allowed to look at people, not allowed to read. You don't have a pencil. You don't have paper. You have nothing that can stimulate you. No eye contact even, nothing. Um, where at the other retreat, I was allowed to read Dharma books. So the second one, um, Diane, I'll just mention it. It's, it. it's like going into a fire. It is just such an incredible burning away everything kind of experience, as well as getting to know every single corner of your mind, every habit, every element, and a lot to learn, but a little bit more intense. So if my advice to somebody interested like you in going is perhaps pick a little lighter side one before transitioning into the full-blown going Vipassana. Right. I think I could do maybe a three-day or something to start because the 10 day, that seems to be really challenging. But I like how you're saying it's broken up a little bit where you can do walking meditations and other things. You're not just sitting there for eight hours or something like that. But that must really, things start breaking away and you really get down to the nitty gritty, right? Like it's just you and your mind and your thoughts. That's it. It is just you <laughs> That's it. and your thoughts. That's it. Nothing else exists. And it's it made me feel a little crazy. <laughs> and, and forgive that uh, use of that word. I know it's a, a currently a sensitive word, but it did make me feel a little unstable. Um, and it in that way, though, it made me realize all of these conditionings and these formations and these habits and patterns and really made me question, oh, why am I constantly craving this comfort or having aversion for this discomfort. And, and through unraveling some of these elements of our conditioning and our habits, you just become a lot more clear with who you are and all the tricks you have up your sleeve. And there's a lot, I'm sure. There's a lot of, of tricks that you realize, habits of thought that you get into. And it, it was only when I started working at Hay House and, and reading Louise Hay and different teachers that I really became aware of what I was thinking. And you don't realize how many repetitive, negative thoughts, old lessons or beliefs that you're relying on that really don't serve you anymore. Things that you may have held on to from when you were six or seven as a child and you haven't let go of it. So that's really the benefit, right? Of being able to get quiet and tune into those things. 
Oh yes, Diane, absolutely. It's we have so many things that we're not that are not serving us, and I think one of the biggest lessons I learned is I have a lot of compassion. I have so much compassion for other people, and I have so little for myself. And that practice of developing self-compassion, being a better friend to myself, being a little nicer in my brain to to myself, it's just been critical to my my growth and my happiness. It's so important, especially now when we find ourselves triggered so often in the news with what other people believe and things like that. It's it's difficult. And if you come from a place of compassion, it's a lot easier to handle those kind of things. And I just wanted to ask you about one more thing while we stood, still had a few minutes, because I'm really interested in Ayurveda. And you mentioned it, you have a tab on your site and some great information. And there's, and, and again, I want people to go to your site, wildyogatribe.com, because there's so much amazing information to explore. And one of them that caught my eye was Ayurveda. And have you been studying that system for a long time? So I was introduced to Ayurveda. I'd, I'd never even heard the word before about five years ago. And so Ayurveda was an introduction to it, was included in my 200-hour yoga teacher training. And I was so grateful that that we had those weekly classes with an Ayurvedic doctor and then when I returned to India in 2019, I, I saw an Ayurvedic doctor twice um, to kind of check on some of um, just health, you know, health things, make sure I'm balanced. And so I, I haven't, um, I'm not officially certified, but I have read multiple cover to cover Ayurvedic books. Um, so I'm a little bit self-taught in, in what I can share. And part of my vegan nutrition, um, how I serve my clients is try to also talk about their personalities, their habits, their, their, you know, their social structures and all the elements that go into Ayurveda for your listeners, just in case they don't know, it's called the science of life, Ayurveda, science of life or knowledge of life. And so it's not a one size fits all medical type thing. It's really individual for every single person. Every single body is different. And it's based on the five elements, water, earth, air, fire, and ether. And then how your kind of energy, the dosha that you have, and then how can we balance that through your lifestyle, your sleep, your um, food, and, and everything in between. So I really love that about Ayurveda is that it's so um, bespoke, so custom uh, it for is. everybody. It's an amazing system. And the fact that it's it's just so old, it always amazes me that people thousands of years ago somehow keyed into the doshas and which foods affect people differently. And I'm a kapha pitta because I've done my doshas. And uh, it, yeah, I think it's so interesting and people should really look into it. And you mentioned the that you're a vegan. Did yoga lead you to veganism or was it the other way around? Oh, good question. Um, you know, no, I think that uh, for me, it, it was very kind of natural. It just kind of happened on accident. Um, I was always um, not a vegan. I was just a, a normal, you know, uh, what would we call that? Uh, someone California who kid, in and out yeah. burger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would eat pretty much anything. Um, but I started to have some kind of GI just issues. And then one day just uh, meat sounded really unappealing. I just thought, I, I don't think that would nourish me. Like it just seemed very not healthy for my body. So I became a vegetarian for a couple of years. And then after that, just transitioned to vegan. Um, for me, it is just helps me feel energetic and light and clean. And, and then further on in my practice now, with yoga and Buddhism is ahimsa, nonviolence. And so to have that as a pillar um, of my life and to support that with my food and dietary choices and also for the planet um, as an act of what I can do to serve and save <laughs> and, save and do my part for the environment, um, that's how it kind of came just naturally. Right, right. And reducing your carbon footprint a little bit. And I love how now veganism has just exploded. So many people are interested in it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a vegan, but I try to eat more vegan meals. I think the more you can kind of transition yourself to eating less animal products, the, the better. If maybe someday I can get to that vegan place, I'd, I'd like to, to get there eventually. But I think even if you have a day or two during the week, if you're eating vegan, that you're, you're moving in the right direction. And even in my neighborhood, it's, uh, 
gotten a lot easier to find that kind of food. You see Beyond Meat and things like that in the store. So it's becoming more commonplace and more in people's consciousness to move in that direction. So it's cool to see. Mm. And it's been so awesome to chat with you today. And I love talking about all of these things. I could go down your whole list on your website and probably ask you more questions, but what are, are your hopes for the wild yoga tribe, you know, moving through this year? I mean, we are going into like what almost now we're at two years, you know, we're dealing with COVID trying to get out of that. What are your hopes for the next year? Mm, so I mentioned it earlier, but I'm really hoping to build out this back end and kind of have a membership available so that people can can be introduced a little bit further and have the opportunity to engage with and take classes with the yoga teachers that I'm meeting from around the world. So that's something I'm hoping to be able to offer, um, bring continuing to bring the world of yoga, the whole global yoga community together and help share that with people who are interested or curious or anything else. Um, I do hope though, Diane, of course, that um, as we're able to transition out of lockdowns and out of uh, restrictions, that maybe a retreat one day would be possible, bringing everyone together or being able to practice in person more. Um, here in France, we're not, um, I don't think yoga studios are opened. It was only just a couple months ago and we're here in September now in July that we were able to even have a restaurant or a shoe store open, like shoe stores weren't, or clothing stores. Everything was shut down until about July, 2021. So slow reopen, just being able to practice with people again would be a joy for me. And I hope that my podcast continues to, you know, shine light on wonderful people and that listeners tune in and let me know what they're thinking. I would, I would love to hear if you have a recommendation of a yoga teacher or a recommendation of a topic or a question or something. So please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you would like a dosha quiz, if you're curious what dosha you are, send me an email. I'll have, um, uh, or DM me on any of my social platform or platforms at Wild Yoga Tribe, and I can send you over the a dosha quiz. So you can find out what you are. That's great. Well, I'm so glad you're out there in the world. And I hope people head over and check out your site and your podcast as well. Lily Allen Duenas, Wild Yoga Tribe. And thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Diane. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.